You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, as, as you know, uh, a few weeks ago, I was blessed to be able to go to this really awesome conference about Batman in uh, Bowling Green State University. And, and I hear through the grapevine that next year, I think the plan is to do Wonder Woman uh, because it'll all be her 80th anniversary at that point, And that would be kind of awesome to go back. But while I was there, uh, not in addition to seeing a lot of really excellent papers. I was able to make contact with some really interesting people. Um, and one of them has joined me today uh, to talk about his presentation and his general work. Um, his name is Angelo Letizia, and he is an assistant professor in the School of Education at Notre Dame of Maryland University. Angelo, how's it going? Hi, Danny. How you doing? Good. I, I am doing really well, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about you. When I saw your presentation, uh, it, was, uh, it was very interesting to me on one pedagogical level um, because I also like to really incorporate creative activities into my analytic literature classes, right? I think that it, there's some really cognitive benefit in learning by – approaching some work on from a creative level not just sort of a, an intel not just sort of an analytical level i guess and so your project is very much about that but there's also a lot of a real political interest in it as well and so um i'll let you describe um well let's first of all introduce yourself and then we'll describe what you were actually presenting on and i think a lot of our um, listeners are really going to be interested in this if you are either just a Batman fan um, or a comics fan, or if you have a uh, real political interest, I think you're going to be really interested in, uh, in what Angelo is doing. So Angelo, first of all, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you said, I'm a assistant professor of education at Notre Dame of Maryland university in Baltimore. Uh, prior to that, I was an assistant professor of education at Newman university, a small Catholic university in Wichita, Kansas. And prior to that, for 11 years, and this is going to be very pertinent later on, I was a social studies teacher for 11 years in Virginia. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'll just kind of dive in and, and kind of give you the, the broad umbrella of my research, what it is. And okay. then I'll sort of move move down and, and talk about the Batman aspect of it. Yes, and, you, and like you. You're interested in the arts and the and like the, the liberal arts in general. Right. And this is one thing I'm really interested in hearing about. So go right ahead. Okay, I guess. So I, I see this the Batman portion of my research has yeah, one sort of tenant or plank of, of my larger research uh, project. And so so my I started out researching citizenship education. Um, and that that is my my focus. But uh, like you, I, I started realizing um, the benefits of of this more sort of creative artistic take on on citizenship. Um, and so I, I, you know, naturally came to comics because I've been a fan of comics uh, for as long as I can remember. And then I started saying, oh, my God, there's actually professors who who integrate this in their work. Um, so, you know, for, for my whole life, I was I was pretty much just a fan of comics. And then maybe a couple months, about a year ago, I started realizing, oh, there's there's scholarship on this. Um, 
And and so one of the things I started seeing was a lot of scholarship comes from ELA and cultural studies. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see a lot of scholarship coming from social study and from citizenship. Now, granted, a lot of the ELA scholarship does touch on citizenship themes, cultural diversity, um, th- things like that. So there's a natural crossover. Um, but I wanted to frame some I wanted to frame citizenship education uh, with the use of comic books in the classroom. And when I say use of comic books in the classroom, I mean in the high school and college classroom. And I mean uh, as co- students as comic book readers and students as comic book creators. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, you teach um, future teachers, basically, right? And, and yeah. so, yeah, that, that's sort of the perspective you're bringing on this. You're not necessarily... Yeah no longer in the classroom with high school students. You're teaching people who will be in the classroom with high school students. Yes. Okay. So that's a good point. Yeah. One of my main uh, duties is, is to train social studies teachers. I teach social studies methods. I'm training future social studies teachers. Um, and I also teach other disciplines in education that would be encompassed by the social studies. So I teach education law, um, educational psychology, uh, and history of education. And so these things well, not on the second, not on the high, excuse me, not on the college level, but in high school, um, you know, just a brief history about the social studies. It's a very amorphous discipline, if you could even call it that, at the high school level. The social studies is comprised mainly of history. So if you were social studies teacher, you, you mainly teach history, but that also includes or can include like some of the behavioral sciences, psychology, anthropology, uh, political science, civics, economics. And so generally in high school, um, you, you know, your, your main diet of social studies is mainly ancient and U.S. history. And then you usually have a smattering of electives in psychology and anthropology and, and, and sometimes even philosophy and economics and government. Mm-hmm. And so, we, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, we were talking earlier about there's kind of competing ideologies um, behind how we value civics education, right? Yes. And there are, there are a, sort of three approaches you were explaining to me. And I think, I think you went over this in your paper, if I can remember correctly as well. Um, do you want to kind of like set those options up and, and sort of locate what you're doing in that context? Yeah. So, you know, one time I, I submitted this couple years back, I submitted a journal, uh, I submitted a journal manuscript and I thought it was great. And I wrote, you know, about citizenship, nothing with comics yet. And I got a big, you know, I got a big fat rejection on it. And, uh, you know, those are always disheartening, but the, the comments were very revealing. And the comments said, you write a lot about citizenship, but what do you actually mean by that term? And it got me thinking, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that we say a lot, but what does it actually mean? And so that kind of stepped me on my path because social studies educators, you know, one of their main responsibilities generally is to teach citizenship, but what does that actually mean, right? And so one of the things that I use for my teachers, one of the, I, I think one of the best ways to think about citizenship, I use Westheimer and Kane's framework. Um, and, and basically, they, they have three types, of citizen, three types of citizenship model. The first one is called the responsible citizen. And that's, I, I would say, the more typical one that you see in schools. And essentially, that's voting, you know, contributing. Um, the second one is the participatory model, which calls for people who are, who are participating in, in their republic, taking positions, sitting on juries, things of that nature. The third one is 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 what's called what they call justice oriented citizenship, which, as the name implies, you challenge injustice. And so, I'm, I'm going to spare you all the uh, citizenship education jargon. I'm going to use their sort of metaphor of how they describe it. They said, imagine 
the food drive. They said a, a responsible citizen contributes food to the food drive. A participatory citizen would run the food drive, but that justice-oriented citizen would question why people are going hungry in the first place. I see. Mm-hmm. And so this is something, I think that little sort of neat little parable almost, I think really encapsulates exactly these different types of citizens. And they're not necessarily incompatible with each other, but in some cases they could be. Right? So if we think about the, the responsible citizen following laws, well, Martin Luther King didn't follow all the laws, right? Yeah. He violated laws. And, and he would be held up as the justice oriented citizen. And we can also, this is not just, I don't want to say this is an American thing. We can think about Gandhi who, who inspired, right? Gandhi broke a lot of laws and was in prison, as, as was King. Um, so we can view them as sort of these justice oriented citizens who followed, you know, rational laws. But when they when they came across an unrational law, irrational law, they broke it mm-hmm. in the name of something higher. Exactly. Right. And so um, there's a, a kind of a, a criticism that's built into a critical method, if, if you will, that's built in to this uh, justice oriented form of criticism, uh, excuse me, citizenship. Um, and so one thing that I thought was really interesting, uh, and, and I hope we can get to uh, get into some of the layers of this, is that there's certain obstacles in teaching civics uh, in American education in general. Uh, very recently, if you go back a, a couple of episodes, I interviewed um, John Warner about his book, uh, Why They Can't Write. And part of that book, before he gets into the specifics of writing instruction, um, he talks about a lot of the structural issues in um, education in general. And a lot of those are kind of ideological uh, in nature. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the obstacles? Um, I mean, there are like financial obstacles, I'm sure, like in terms of funding, there are parent groups who have certain ideas about citizenship, right? There are the the internal structures about who becomes history teachers, right? When I was a kid, it was all the football coaches. It was sort of their side gig. Uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And so, um, and actually, I think I joked a tweet when Trump was first elected. I'm like, well, this is what happens when you have 40 years of football coaches teaching history. <laughs> so, um, but uh, uh, but beyond, you're, you're someone who actually knows what you're talking about. So uh, why don't you uh, go through a little bit why, what you think the underlying challenges are f- uh, for teaching civics uh, towards that more justice-oriented way? Okay. Well, number one, I, I do have to say I, I actually was a football coach, and that actually did help me get a job. So that that really is 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 a spot on criticism. But uh, now, and I, I like will say Mr. that I was was one of those coaches. But no, no, you you are correct. Mr. Um, Keel was a wonderful teacher. I really love my yeah. my history teacher. Right, um, I had others who weren't great. Right, but Mr. Right. Keel I, was amazing. I, I did so, too. Yeah. No, and it, it really it, it is legit. And I don't have any data to back this up. So you know, a lot of this is anecdotal, right? But but yeah, I, I think social studies. This is such a wide region, wide, wide ranging question, and I want to try to sort of stay on task. So we'll, we'll kind of start with that first. Of who becomes a social studies teacher? I think there's a perception number one that social studies is easy, mm. um, and a lot of the way that it's taught, it, it is easy because you know you're, you're drilled on multiple choice quizzes and tests, especially through the No Child Left Behind era, which thankfully is over, but we still have vestiges of it. Um, and as I remind my students. Historians don't take multiple choice quizzes, <laughs> right? A true historian is not just like, you know, just like an English, they don't take multiple choice quizzes. They're writing these, you know, 400 page 
Yeah. dissertations and i try to remind my students that just because you can ace a test uh, that, that doesn't make you a historian and so i think number one we've we've dumbed it down i say we i think yeah that's a concerted effort policymakers groups um history is is sort of a dumping ground and it's seen as, as easier right i mean even in no child left behind and common core uh the target is not really history um the, this is this is there are certain common core standards aimed at history but it's not like and, and ELA ones, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, as you had mentioned, is I, I do think that there is a partisan sort of view of this um, that history can be used to indoctrinate. So on the one hand, it's like this easy joke. Of, and on the other hand, it's very dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, and so maybe those things aren't unrelated, right? Maybe there's there's a reason of why they're drilled on multiple choice quizzes and and maybe not promoted to do community projects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and you know I I, I don't want to get too too uh, too too into this because it'll take us another show. <laughs> but you know there was a real um, backlash, and again I, I'm coming from that sort of neoliberal framework, but there was a real backlash in the '60s and the '70s. Um, and it wasn't just centered on history education. It was centered a lot at the universities, uh, but of sort of this radical scholarship and pedagogy and what it did. Um, and, and a lot of that was responsible for what what it began to have. There's a great book on this. Christopher Newfield's Unmaking of the Middle Class is kind of where I draw a lot of my ideas on this from. But there was real bad radical education in general. Um, you know, when the, he's an English professor who writes it. But, you know, I, I would relate a lot of that to the social studies as well. Um you know, it goes back even earlier. Do you have questions of, of you know, fears, fears of Sputnik, right? I mean, there's just all these mm-hmm. things that contribute to, to, to this, this sort of downgrading of what we have today of social study. Um, and so, you know, I think on the one this idea that it's this sort of easy dumping ground, and we could just use multiple choice tests. And on the other hand, there is a genuine fear of getting kids, especially, to critically think about things. Um, and so there are partisan obstacles. And, and you know, I, w- I would love to say that it's only Republicans, but it's not. Uh, Clinton and Obama ha- have definitely had a role in this. Um, this sort of neoliberal wanted to bring up um, was this sort of, I would say, almost a pathological focus on STEM education. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm not a Luddite. I, I don't I, I obviously believe in science, and mathematics and these things are very, very important. But I think they are divorced from any critical or historical understandings. Um, they are seen, as you use your phrase before, as sort of just utilitarian. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a friend at my college graduation, and they were inter- they had some STEM talk, some guy talking about STEM, and he leaned over to me and he said, "You know why they want us to know STEM?" I said, "Why?" He said, "Because it helps us build better bombs." Right? <laughs> <laughs> But the but the idea is that there is sort of a measurable kind of practical end, theoretically at least, to um, this kind of STEM education, right? You can yeah. you can imagine the specific job that comes out of the other end of right. that process, um, whereas being adept and conversant with your historical context, uh, that's not so applicable to you selling your labor for wages down the road, right? And so right. Um, that's uh, I think that's kind of one thing that underlies a lot of this. And therefore, I think um, you end up with this kind of testing regime in which yeah. um, I, as long as you know 
X, Y, and Z, you know, George Washington and the Delaware River and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and you can memorize those facts. We'll consider you, we'll consider you kind of worthy of, uh, of being a responsible citizen, I suppose, to use one of those right. terms, right? Yep. And so, and that's about as far as they care to take it because it doesn't have this economic benefit on the other end, right? And so, um, one thing that in, in Warner's book, I just want to kind of, um, if you, um, haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend, um, listening to him talk about, uh, his work. It's really great, but he's, uh, uh, he quotes, um, uh, Mattis, I know, I forget who it is now. Uh, he quotes somebody, uh, in the, uh, in the book who basically tells, um, colleges and high schools even that they're, they are the consumer of the product that high schools are producing. Right. And so it's an entire, it's a way of entirely reducing Mm -hmm. students to, products to be consumed by business. Right. And and so, uh, and, and I think the whole like STEM motivation is part of this general ideology. I'm not saying it's all of this general ideology, but it's certainly part of it. Uh, And, and I think that, that what gets left behind really instead of children are these sorts of uh, like more humanistic endeavors, which make us, you know, quality individuals and good citizens, right? And so I think that this this is what's being uh, lost. And I think you have a really tremendous solution <laughs> to uh, to re-engaging uh, people with that. Another thing, to go back to Warner one more time, and then we can get into um, the Batman project in, in particular here. Uh, one thing that he really kind of uh, stresses is that in order for people to write good papers, you know, they're going to have to have some sort of investment in the project themselves, right? Um, And much of our task as teachers is to get them to take personal ownership of this, um, of this project. And they will therefore be much more likely to do the proofreading at the grammatical level at the very end of that process because they own this and it's something they're proud of. And and I totally uh, concur with this. And likewise, I think getting them to take things in history and and in politics seriously has something to do with taking some sort of personal investment in that. And and I think that you've designed a kind of assignment here that is, goes a long way towards that, Uh, especially in the age when superheroes are, that's a, a major commonality that we have in our culture, right? That's something that everybody's conversant with, or many, many people at least. And so drawing on that for use in the classroom, I think is, is a really brilliant idea. Um, do you want to kind of transition into the nature of this assignment and, and why Batman? And, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So let me just say, so my work focuses on, like I said, Batman is sort of one plank of what I do, and I'm what I'm going to talk about here. Uh, but but basically, like I said, uh, and first of all, I just I want to concur with you about that idea of ownership. That's something that I believe in very strongly. Um, when students can take ownership of their work, um, I, I think it just makes for a much better educational experience, and it makes them more invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely. Uh, so so yeah. So one of the things. Um, you know, and, and it was really the Batman conference. So I, I had this idea about using comics in the classroom. I'm not the only one who does this, right? There's a lot of people who do uh, My wife did it when she was a teacher. She had them, you know, redraw their notes in comic form. I've talked to people. So I, I, I'm not original in doing this, right? Um, but, yeah, I think there's some, some really amazing benefits. Now, let me – so if you want, I'll just kind of talk about Batman a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things I think Batman has to offer is 80 years' worth of history. That, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Batman's been around something like 80 years now, right? 
And so we have a lot to draw on. And uh, I actually just want to talk a little bit about sort of where my ideas got sparked from um, was the HPA or the Harry Potter Association. Now, go ahead. <laughs> I had that in my notes, and I could not for the life of me figure out what I meant by HPA, and now I totally remember <laughs> what you're talking about. Okay, so I'm just laughing at myself, like, what is HPA? I was Googling all over the place, coming across <laughs> all sorts of things, and now I totally remember what you're talking Perfect. about. Continue. <laughs> this sparked my – this is where I kind of got the idea to translate Batman into this. Now, it stands for Harry Potter Association. I have a confession. I am not really a Harry Potter fan, uh, but I, I know enough about, about the just the idea. I know enough of um, but this was a work by Jenkins, and basically what he was arguing, he was – well, let me put this note. He argues for this idea of – and I just – I love this – this idea of uh, a cultural sort of acupuncture mm-hmm. <laughs> where you take something that is – when you take an imaginary story such as Harry Potter and you take that and you graph that on to real-life situations – and so, and you use that as a common language for fans to mobilize mm-hmm. and to fight. And again, think about how this would, how this goes back to my, no, not my, but have the idea of justice-oriented citizenship. So mobilizing to fight injustice, but not just doing this in a sort of, I don't say boring, but, you know, traditional textbook way, but but doing this in a way that's, that's fun, you know, almost. We're fighting very serious. So one, one of the examples from the HBA is Voldemort. And again, I don't know much about it, but I know that he's pretty evil. Yeah. Um, but Voldemort, they, they, they link it to Walmart, Voldemort. Uh huh. So, I mean, I mean, even somebody who doesn't read the, I I can partake. I get it. So Walmart's evil. Voldemort's evil. They sound the same. And, and so they, they've run campaigns. Uh, uh, but I, I can't remember some of the exact things they've done, but, the organization is very loose. It's not very centralized, and obviously that's done on purpose. Um, I mean, there is some central structure. Again, I don't want to speak too much about it. Uh, but but essentially, the idea is that they can rally people to fight for causes using what they call that common currency of the Harry Potter language. Yeah. And so I said, well, why don't we do that for Batman? Yeah. And um, I, I don't want to get any any arguments about which is better or worse, right? But I think Batman, just you know, just from a longevity standpoint, obviously gives us a lot to work with. Um, and, and you know, it was the conference that we went to that really got me thinking about the history of Batman that, that, it, that it really offered. And so from his first appearance in 1939 until 2019, um, it, it really started to get me thinking about the history. And uh, I also wanted to talk now about the idea of the ethical spectacle, if that's okay. If I can. Um, you broke up just a little bit. The ethical spectacle is that what you says? Yes. Yeah, so the idea said? of the dream politic or the ethical spectacle. Yes. Thank you. So the other thing Jenkins had had led me to another uh, scholar, uh, Stephen Duncombe, who um, wrote a book called Dreamer Fantasy. Uh, excuse me, Dreamer Nightmare. Um, Politics, I don't I remember the exact title, but um, it was originally written in 2007. However, it was reissued in 2019 with a new forward and with a picture of the Joker on the cover. So how mm. fitting is that? Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, uh, Duncombe's argument is that we as progressives need to use the idea of the spectacle. And what he meant by that. Uh, and, and, and he he's very clear on this. So when we think about spectacle being used in politics, it's almost always negative. Uh, the Nazis are probably the biggest 
probably the ones that you would think of the most. The the Nazi parades, triumph of the will, right? Mm-hmm. I would think of Stalin of, of Soviet Union using spectacle. North Korea right now, spectacle, right? The, the parading of missiles through a town square, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, he also links it to modern advertising. Um, and I would argue, and following Joe Kinchlow, who's a critical educator, he's since passed, but his, his he's has voluminous work on this, just about how the modern, modern and Duncan talks a little bit about it too, about the modern advertising industry and how that's influenced um, of political messaging. Mm. Right. So political messaging is 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 very similar to to ads. So, right. So the way the advertising industry works. Right. So Duncombe, uh, he picks on liberals a little bit and says, you know, you're all boring. He says you sit there and you have these thousand page dissertation dissertations and books and you, and, and you kind of just follow the enlightenment and you want everything to be rational and scientific. And he says that's not the way people argue. That's not the way people think. He actually commends Trump on this. Mm-hmm. He says Trump knows how to appeal to people's fears. And that's not what he's arguing to do. But he can at least appeal to people's, not their logic. And obviously there's a danger in this. And Duncombe acknowledges this, right? We know that demagogues appeal to people's fears. And he's saying instead of appealing to people's fears, we appeal to their hopes to get political solutions achieved. Yeah. And that to me, and he's, you know, and he, and he lays out some ways how to do this. And one of the ways is you use spectacle, but you never have spectacle. You never, you never proclaim your spectacle is the truth. So the Nazis and the Soviets and, and Trump claim that what they're saying is the truth. Right. Uh, so, so, and the racial sort of um, science, the, the, the pseudo racial science, all that was taken as truth. And if you didn't take it, you were thrown into a country. Right. right. And so so Duncombe is very clear about this and saying, no, we use spectacle to get people to imagine a better world. And I, I actually emailed him and, and got some more clarification. And he, he responded back to me and he said, you know, think of spectacle in two ways. It could be used to illuminate a truth. So he says, think about uh, Rosa Parks. Right. That was a spectacle. She was put up to that. Right. That wasn't that, that wasn't just it didn't just happen. Uh, but she used that was used that spectacle was used to illuminate the horrible truth of, of segregation on the public transit system. But then he said, Jesus Christ had a spectacle as well. And what Jesus did was not just illuminate the truth. Jesus pointed the way to a better world. Mm. Jesus pointed to a world where people, you know, he ate with sinners and, and prostitutes and tax collectors and all these pariahs and lepers. And he ate where he ate in, you know, he, he, Posed it in a world where the first will come last and the last will come first. And 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 so Duncombe argued that was essentially an ethical spectacle. Mm. So my thought was to use comic books as that ethical spectacle in the classroom. Um, this There's so many connections to enduring interests of the show that I just need to kind of point out along the way. Um, yeah, every time I have a new guest on, I assume a few new listeners are going to be following that guest to the show. So if this is the first time you're listening to the show, um, there's a lot of previous episodes that you want to go back to. Um, one of which, um, just recently, I, I talked to um, Adam Ray Adkins about um, the Weezer um, album of remakes, and uh, and and we connected it to Mark Fisher's book um, Capitalist Realism, and that's kind of one of the uh, arguments that he makes in that book. It's one of the the contributions he makes to 
kind of leftist thinking is that capitalism has a way of uh, preforming your imagination, right? And conforming it to the values of, of capital, right? And so we can't even imagine a world beyond yeah. it, right? And yeah. so, um, and I think that, um, you know, one of the things that Adam talked about was this, uh, this idea that, I mean, he invited me to some Facebook group that I don't quite understand uh, because I'm, 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 I'm not very bright, I suppose. But um, this idea of acid communism, um, it comes out of this in which you're sort of uh, fix, you're reorienting your imagination, maybe through chemicals. I don't know. I am not a drug user. I've never used a drug in my life. <laughs> and so this is something I don't quite understand. But I do understand the motivation behind it. It's sort of like um, re- recalibrating your imagination yeah. on some level so that you can see past where you are and think of other other potentials. Um, and so... Um, that is an episode that recently just uh, just dropped not too long ago that I think um, is picking up uh, and elaborating on that particular aspect of if it's not the economic uh, problem, it's a social reality that we can't see beyond. Right. And so right. Um, and whether, you know, you're down with communism or not, my show is very ecumenical in that way. Like I have like hard leftists and I have like conservative Christians who come together uh, in the show and, and get along nicely. And so um, but uh, that that is one thing I think that um, comes to mind um, right away. And also there's a book by Terry Eagleton that I think is really interesting called Reason, Faith, and Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever done a show on this, but there's a uh, uh, he's kind of making an argument for the radical nature of Christianity in the way that you just did with Jesus, right? He's the, the, There's a spectacle in Jesus's uh, message and life that points the way towards something beyond um, the current political, the current political reality. Uh, and, and I think that um, that Eagleton's book is probably about 15 years old now, um, I think speaks to that uh, quite strongly and, and in very interesting ways. So yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying right now is is right on the right on the nose of, of what of enduring interests are for this for the show and so um yeah so batman um just like voldemort becomes kind of uh people because we have this shared language in, in harry potter voldemort becomes part of that shared language and people can use it as a metaphor for walmart right and so right. Um, in a way to think about consumerism and and big box stores and that kind of thing um and so there's a lot of material in the history of batman um himself right that provides more of that kind of metaphorical um imaginative material that allows us to rethink the present from a different angle right and i, I think that's kind of where you're getting at yeah um yeah, and, and you know, what you talked about, about sort of sometimes the imagination even being hemmed in, and Duncombe, yeah, talks a little bit about that, um, and, and you're right, and I think, you know, one of the, education can be sort of breaking out of that, um, right, and, and sort of positing that that new world, or as Duncombe said, maybe we don't actually pose it the new world itself, but just the people thinking about something different. Yeah. And something else I wanted to bring up very briefly is, is something very similar that I stumbled upon was this notion of arts-based research, which says, I think, something a little similar. And they say, you know, and, and scholars, you know, that are university professors are arguing for using art as a type of research. And they said regular research, when you think about research, think about scientific research, physical research, a lot of this tries to almost reflect reality. When you when you make a good scientific experiment, you want to reflect reality. Yeah. But when you do something arts-based, you want to disrupt reality. You want to disrupt it. You want to, you want to question the status quo. So one example they gave, and this was um, L, um, uh, Barone and Eisner's book, and they basically talked, and one of the examples they gave was about, uh, 
you know, having a um, they interviewed students who were homeless after Hurricane Katrina. And then with the interview transcript, instead of writing a paper, they wrote a play. Mm. So it's 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 empirical in that sense. And this is what I do with my students. That's why I'm bringing this up. This is how I this is how I, I coach my students. to this. I say what you're doing is not some flight into fantasy. You're being empirical. You're taking ideas. So I had them read a traditional textbook throughout the year and articles and everything you would do as a normal professor, right? And taking those ideas and using them to create something new that, that possibly disrupt the, the the way we think. Yeah. Uh, but going back um, again, why this is so kind of challenging in certain quarters, um, going back to your that, that three ideas of civics, um, yeah. the, the responsible citizenship isn't so much interested in disruption, right? No. Um, nope. it, it's not until you get to that level of justice oriented citizenship. Um, and so this is one of the challenges in, um, in education is that the, the ideological demands of the institution precludes certain certain activities uh one way or the other right uh, and, and so what you're doing absolutely is um is disruptive even the fact that you're not necessarily having them come up with an analytical um you know uh thesis-driven essay uh, as the end product, something that we can measure their quality of their thought. You're coming up with something creative. Just that idea of going out of the out of the rational and into the creative is disruptive to the system. Uh, yeah. and, and so I think that it, but in that way, it's also super valuable. And I, like I said, I very often have, I don't make the culminating assignment a creative one, but something that kind of uh, scaffolds the culminating assignment. I do have them do a, a creative something or other, uh, depending on the class, um, pretty much every semester. And, and I find that they end up learning the material so much more deeply um, because of that kind of engagement. Uh, and so um, I totally think that Batman is, uh, is, uh, is a great offering here for us. Um, some specific examples then of, of, yeah. how, ba- of how Batman. Um, Let's dive into it. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, now that you know about the spectacle, I've, I've kind of went through that. Um, one of the, well, what I talked about at the conference, um, what I see is is the Joker uh, as an example. You know, you can play with the Joker with an idea of the spectacle. He's obviously not ethical, right? Mm-hmm. But at least the idea of the spectacle, I guess really any character when you think about it, right? But but really the Joker, I think, hits at this notion of spectacle. And Batman's spectacle, too. The guy has, you know, ape and, and ears and, and, and a symbol, <laughs> right? I mean, he's an – I guess – and we could debate if he's ethical or not, right? But he's an ethical – he could be at least considered an ethical spectacle, mm-hmm. right? So this is the first thing that led me to it. Um, and, and for the conference that you and I had attended, um, I had uh, – it's something I also I agree with. I, I'm creative. I like to draw. I, I, Marvel or DC is not going to call me anything soon. <laughs> I tell my students this, but I draw along with them. When I, when I, you know, I create with them and I know in the English literature, English teachers are encouraged to write with their students, create it with their students. And I think it's no different here. If I'm asking them to create a comic, I, you know, I don't want to dominate the show and show them my stuff, but I do bring it in and I do show them some of just my ideas and how I work through some things. Um, And I I make sure that doesn't dominate it. It's not a show about me, but it does say, oh, you know, he's doing it. Okay. You know, he's. Right, he, he's doing it. Then, then, then he's asking us to do the same thing. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things I'd done for the conference was I had linked the Joker to I had adapted uh, my favorite comic, The Killing Joke, uh, to some of the present day circumstances and try to recast Joker as a spectacle. And I put him in. Uh, I made him Uncle Sam. So the yeah. famous scene where he comes out of the the acid, right, and he's got his hands in his hair. 
Uh, if you're, you know, you're a real hardcore Batman fan. You probably know what scene I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I put the, I use that, and I put the, uh, t- I put the, you know, this Uncle Sam hat on. Him. And I think it's also, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is the term I came to. Um, so intertextuality, when you when you see things in a number of different iterations. Right. Um, yeah, it's when you know texts are in conversation with other texts in, yeah. the, in their creation. Yeah. So, yeah, one, so a story will incorporate many other yeah. texts in the creation of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think maybe it sort of is like that. Like, like I said, mine's not going to be published or anything. But uh, you know, if we just assume that it's another text, it's in conversation with one in some way, shape, or form, reappropriating it at least. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was gonna. Um, so that's. What I thought that to me is, was my initial thought about Batman and citizenship. And I think that there's so many ways you could slice the Joker and Batman and the notion of spectacle. Um, and there's so many comics that have done this. Grant Morrison's, uh, of, I can't think of the title off the top of my head, Arkham. Um, a Serious House on Serious Earth? Is that? The- yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, just, just, you know, the whole idea of all Batman's rogues gallery, the whole thing is a giant spectacle. Yeah. Right. So, but I think the Joker, and, and especially I think in the Christopher Nolan film, in, in, in the second one with Heath Ledger, um, you know, I think that really hits at the notion of spectacle. But but the comic too that he references World War II, and and I actually had to look that up. He reference he makes a World War II reference, um, and so he actually more actually even incorporate Alan Moore even incorporates some some history. And of course, it's the Joker, so you know you have to look it up. But yeah. <laughs> um, and I, when I was looking it up, somebody had said that the Joker's not exactly a, a reliable narrator. But that's the point of it. Right. Um, so you know, I think the notion of spectacle would be one. Um, you know, I think what you did, your panel, uh, at the show, I think is another great way to look at what you did. I was looking more at the actual story itself. You were looking at sort of the creation of the story, right? And I don't know if you wanted to mention that and tie it into what I'm talking about. Yeah. Race. Yeah. Um, for those of you who haven't heard that, um, I didn't release it on this, um, feed, but city of man podcast and the Vox podcast, um, both released, uh, audio versions of that panel that I was on when we talked about kind of a lack of, of, um, uh, racial diversity in Batman. And I was particularly focused on the cinematic universe, but, um, but in general, I think that holds as well. And so, yeah, we, we sort of talked about kind of underlying factors as to why Batman avoids, um, these kinds of, um, you know, more, progressive racial uh, values uh, in, in the depictions of those stories. And so um, if you're anybody's interested in hearing that you can go to one of those other shows, city of man or Vox Popcast, uh, and they both have released that. So, yeah, I mean, that's another example of how we can tie this in. Um, so I think there was some, this came out at the conference a lot. Um, this, the idea of wealth inequality or wealth disparity, obviously Batman yeah. is the 1%. Yeah. Um, Right. We talked, you know, that had come up in yours and, and, and at a lot of other co- at a lot of other um, presentations at the conference. Um, and, and I would suggest you and I were talking about the the White Knight comic that had just that, that's fairly new. Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of that in there. You know, why is Batman building? Yakin is even in there. The Joker says, why did you the Joker's actually reform? And Gore, it was Gordon, I think, who says, you know, you could have given me a whole bunch of Batmobiles. Why didn't you give them before? <laughs> and and Alfred says this too in the Christopher Nolan one. In um, I believe it's the second one. He says you could help the, the DPPD. You could give them things. It's either the second or the third one. I can't remember. Um, so you know, there's this question of of wealth inequality. Um, I would also argue you can maybe 
tie it into philanthropy. You think about what a question philanthropy is in our own, I mean, just from an educational standpoint, you know, Bill Gates, I mean, philanthropy always has strings, right? No one ever gives yeah. money away for free. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, totally. <laughs> and so these lever, these are levers in our democracy that, that need to be critically addressed. I mean, I, as far as Bill Gates goes, he's got his hands in, in a lot of different educational and he doesn't have an educational degree. He doesn't, you know, I mean, we're, so my, my point is philanthropy is driving education in a lot of ways. And I think you could culturally map some of things that come up in the Batman series about philanthropy to what's going on today. So there's another example. Yeah, there's like a way in which um, philanthropy is is kind of aristocratic in the way that Bruce, yeah. Bruce Wayne is, right? It's just someone who has the wealth um, dictating uh, the solutions for the yeah. folks that are in need of the wealth, right? And so if you're taking Bill Gates's money, you your school is going to get rid of books and you're going to have iPads for everybody, ironically, or yeah. you know what I mean? And so, um, uh, or, or some, some other sort of technological driven solution to education, right? Because of the, the source of that money. Um, and so, yeah, I think that Batman's, aristocratic nature is a great metaphor um, to make use of and to find a particular um, script in which that is evident in the story and adapting that to accommodate a, a contemporary reality is a really interesting way. Not only, I mean, for me in the English side, it's a great way to engage with the, with the text, but from the civic side, it's also a great way to engage with the political. Um, the example you gave from the killing joke, I think there's actually several um, potentials for that. That's a very controversial uh, comic um, amongst a lot of folks because um, Barbara Gordon is, um, is treated in a really terrible way uh, in that, get into that. by the Joker, right? And so while you have, yeah, the Joker's transformation into this kind of spectacle-driven ideologue, um, you've mapped Uncle Sam's face onto the end of that, right? That That's making very kind of clear um, and, and interesting political um, – kind of observations about the the current political, you know, military industrial complex or whatnot, right? But alongside a good, an interesting reading of the Joker, um, the scene where he shoots Barbara Gordon um, can speak, I think, really closely to the Me Too moment, moment right? And I think, yeah. I think if you're interested in engaging in the complexities of this kind of political moment um, on the, you know, in this critique of patriarchy that we're in, I think that that book becomes interesting in that way too. Not necessarily well, in a great way. <laughs> yeah, actually that was my next, well, that's actually what I wanted to focus on next. Um, that's because, okay, so some really great literature has come out about Barbara Gordon's disability as well. Mm. And so this is what I actually did in my class with doctoral students, actually. And they were very on board with this. And so, um, I take a lot of this. There was a great book. Uh, it was Whedon and Foss, and some of them are disability scholars. They looked at disability in comics. It was put out by Paul Gray McMillan in 2016. One of the chapters was by Alan, and he chronicles Barbara Gordon's, um, calls it the de-disabling of Barbara Gordon, and some of the politics behind this. Okay. So this, this is what I wanted. This is one of the other things I wanted to discuss. Um, so you have Barbara Gordon, who's brutally, you know, just, just, brutally shot that scene is just you know horrendous brutally shot and he actually said shed some more light on that um and so she's shot and and then she's in a wheelchair right she becomes oracle and as brutal as this scene was there was actually a silver lining to it in the fact that 
he becomes one of the not the first but one of the first female disabled female superheroes with disabilities with a disability she becomes a symbol of hope for a lot of people with disabilities and even in even in in alana talks about this a lot that you know think about her name even that girl it's like she's like batman jv right yeah she's like but as oracle she completely recast herself as something totally new and different um and so this is my and now this is interesting that you would talk about the me too movement so in my class we had talked about um we had talked about Title IX legislation. Mm-hmm. And then the next week, we had talked about uh, education for people with disabilities, the IDEA. So I framed the Barbara Gordon debate in, in, as a policy using Barbara Gordon uh, uh, you know, as a policy debate and just kind of looking at some of you know the stereotypes and, and looking at some of the possibilities and potential of, of both of these. Because really, as Alan describes, both of these two sort of, I don't want to say conflicting, but I guess they did conflict in a way. You have disability advocates on the one side, and you can't see me doing this, but I have my hands arranged as fist, right? Yeah. The disability advocates on one side and women um, and people who are arguing, and rightfully so, about the violence against women in comics, right? Gail Simone's Women in Freezers, right? Yeah. Um, sort of coming to a head here. And for me personally, I, I really empathize with both. I mean, that's absolutely correct. As a comics reader, women are objectified sexually. They are, are treated to horrendous violence in comics. But, and so a lot of them were saying, well, wait a second, you live in a world where Batman, right? Bane breaks his back and what, it's a year later and he's on the streets again. And Barbara Gordon is crippled for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, you know, super, you know, we, we live in a world of amulets and powers. People could just walk magically, but the one female who gets disabled can't. Yeah. There's a legitimate criticism in that, but at the same point, the disability really became a sign of hope that somebody with a disability could, and and really they they talk about this like idea of post ADA uh, vision of disability of people with disabilities being active contributing citizens. So I think right there, there's just so much to unpack, and I did this with my class. And and I think the Killing Joke. I mean, Alan Moore is like one of the the kind of artistic uh, comic creators, right? And and there's like a literary nature to his work, yeah. uh, and. Like many, you know, works of literature, there's something that's sort of, you can't get to the end of it quite, right? Um, There's always these really interesting paradoxes that keep you from finishing uh, with a work of literature. Like it's never kind of done. Um, And so that work lends itself because it, it, you're right, it produces these two kind of incommensurate viewings of itself at the same time. One is extremely negative, one is extremely positive, and they come into conflict in that. And so that kind of a comic lends itself to really complex um, political debates outside the comic, right? Uh, and and it, it not only reflects the world, and I think that's one way that comic studies can get kind of boring. Um, in pop culture studies in general, I think they can get boring if you limit yourself to, oh, this reflects this thing that's going on in society. This reflects that thing that's going on in society. Everything's just a mirror to society. Um, there's also a way in which this provides kind of new new glasses and new lenses yeah. um, to understand yeah. society, right? It gives you a, a, a new perspective. It, it disorients you from the way you um, approach the real world and allows you to see it in a new way. And, and I think that, that that comic, controversial as it is, and I'm not 
begrudging anybody who hates that comic um, because there are reasons to hate that comic. And, and they're, they're yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the, enough said on that, I suppose. But, um, but nonetheless, it is important and it can be made to be very productive. And I think that, uh, that that's a really interesting um, way to use it in this class. Um, can we, as we kind of push towards the end here, we're pushing up on an hour already. I can't believe it. it's been great, man. <laughs> I really have enjoyed this conversation. Um, are we, as we push towards the end, are there any kind of like particular success stories that you can sort of report um, about uh, using this uh, method? Well, not, the one I just had, I, I thought, you know, I had given them um, the scene where Barbara Gordon is brutally shot. And then I found just sort of a random comic with Oracle in it, uh, showing how Oracle is doing her thing and, and a superhero in her own right. And I juxtaposed those two and gave that to my, my law students, my doctoral students. Most of them are administrators and teachers. And we were, you know, able to discuss some of the themes that we had been talking about in the class. Um and so I think that that was definitely a success using Batman in that sense. Um, one of the other things, and, and this wasn't specifically towards Batman, but this is just more ethical spectacle in general. What, what my plan is is to use some of these Batman. I'm, I'm in the right now. I'm in the works of creating a class at my university, and the Batman project is going to be featured prominently in there, or, or some of these things that we've been talking about. Okay. Um, one of the successes that I've had is um, my history of education students. They had to create a comic as their drawing on, like I said, tech, and sort of using this to disrupt questions. So I, I drilled them in ethical spectacle and symbolism, and and and, and I also drilled them in um, comic language and lingo, and because none of them were comic. They didn't, they didn't really understand how it worked. I had to give a tutorial on that and how the frames and the word balloons and every single choice that they make as a comic creator is important. Nothing's really left to chance. Yeah. Um, and so really what I was watching was them create sort of an ethical spectacle. And of course, there's things I want to go back and change when I redo the assignment here. And especially when I tailor it more towards Batman. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they really jumped on board with it. And I, I was given free reign to do this. What do you do with, um, so the question that always comes up are the people who think they don't have any talent, they can't draw, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's not really the point of this. If you can't draw, it's spectacular, right? And try to get yourself in a group in which uh, you have a talented artist, uh, you know, but um, but if that's not, that's not really the point. So what do you do uh, in those sorts of situations on a kind of practical level to that's, empower them to kind of pursue the project anyway? So that's, yeah, you're right. That's central to this because that was the first thing they all said. I can't draw. I can't draw. And it turns out that they're actually not that bad at art. <laughs> exactly. Um, but one of the things that I stress is something that I've been, and, and this is, I'm glad you asked this because this, this makes the, this is kind of ties everything together. This is the idea of visual literacy. And that's at the heart of this project. And I would argue, um, you know, Duncombe doesn't really get into this idea of visual literacy, but to live in our world today, you need to be visually literate. Uh, images abound, whether that's in advertising on the computer, where billboards, wherever. Images abound, and you need to understand a lot of this, I'd say, uh, from Bray and Fisher, who talk about how we need to be critical and understand students need to have visual literacy. And essentially, every image communicates meaning. And in fact, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading Abel and Madden's book, and they talk about creating comic you know, with students. And their argument, and, and this isn't their argument, but this is also Eisner, you know, the, the cloud, and all, and all these guys. Images are a language onto the film. Yeah. And I think that's the heart of the assignment. That's what I stressed with. You can draw stick figures. Hold them that. None of them actually did. One girl did a little bit. For the most part, they didn't. 
you can draw a stick figure, right? And and still communicate a message. And using visuals will let you communicate things that words will not let you communicate. Yeah. And so in conjunction together, that's the heart of the entire assignment. I think with Batman, you can – so like what I did with my example of using the Joker in this Uncle Sam pack, there's an image there that I don't think I could have got to with words. And so that's what I try to stress with my students is that you are using images almost as a language to say things, disruptive things, that you couldn't necessarily say with words because words just don't have that capacity to say. Yeah. So that's what I tell them. And once you tell them that, and I tell them it's not a fine arts class, you just think. Um, but once I, I tell them that, that kind of the switch goes on and they say, oh, okay, I see what, you, what you're getting at. And that, I think, ties also into the spectacle. That's how we use art and comic art specifically as part of the spectacle. Yeah, um, and, and therefore it becomes kind of disruptive. And, you know, use – I mean, I think that really great artists have a way of using their limitations um, in productive ways, right? I think one of the reasons that Hitchcock's films are so kind of psychologically compelling is that there were certain things he couldn't show because of, you know, the time he was making movies. Uh, and, and so, like, those kind of limitations he put to work for him, right? By yeah. um, And so if you have a, a rudimentary writing style or drawing style, then there's some way to make – make that work for you right in in uh in the kind of message that you're trying to uh to get a uh, get aside or to get across and i think that uh this is uh, and that activity is very rhetorical in its nature right you're kind of like how can i i have a message that i want to convey like how can i best with the tools that i have convey that message to that audience in that moment right uh and so i think that um, even in an English class, I can see this as working really well as um, an extension of rhetorical practice, um, if nothing else. And, and and your limitations, if there are certain senses, things I want to say, I don't have the words to say it. I got to find other words to say it. If there are certain pictures I want to draw and I don't have the hand skill to do that, I've got other fi- I've got to find other yeah. ways to get that across. Um, and that's a rhetorical exercise, and I think it's really fascinating. Um, Angelo, this has been amazing. Um, do you have, do you have any uh, thing you want to leave us with? Um, I, I actually, yeah. There's one thing. One of my students. Uh, this was her idea, and so just kind of finishing up on the success, just to give you an example. Again, this wasn't with Batman per se, uh, but she we we did a, a we did a um, a comics grid exercise from uh, Nick Susanis. He he he's a comics educator as well, and he has people draw grids, like seeing the the comic panel. Excuse me, as being part of the artwork. Okay. And her idea was to use the natural panels and frames in the American flag and illustrate those and put scenes in those. Um, and, and, and I mean, what it's just a wonderful idea that was. And that was all her. Yeah. Right. So this, the flag has its own symbolism. She was going to use the, the stripes and the stars. She was going to use a Confederate flag. She was going to use the flag with the 13 stars uh, and, it was, and just use the natural frames in the flag to illustrate um, – instances in our history uh she was looking at more critical instances but i mean just things like that that i think you can get across with visual literacy um with this idea of spe- i mean that is a spectacle if i've ever seen one right um and, and so just that's the kind of thinking that disruption i think healthy disruption i think that arts that the spectacle thinking and arts-based research and all this stuff can i think really get our students to think about yeah that and that shows i mean not only i mean that creative thinking 
should be its own reward, right? But I mean, but it also contributes to a general kind of factual and uh, you know yeah. pragmatic understanding of the subject matter. And so I think that that's a, that's a brilliant example. I, I taught a class on Kafka once, and one of my um, creative projects was they were supposed to pick one Kafka narrative and come up with some sort of electronic version of it right and i left i left it that vague anything that was an e version of any style and i was really i I pushed them to kind of think creatively but they would when they would and then they had to kind of give a presentation in which they rationalized all their choices they had to tell me why they chose to do i do that too that's yeah yeah i think that's an important part the the Mm self-assessment um is is an important part of this um but um and i was amazed at the level of details from those stories that they were actually drawing on um, in very subtle ways in some of the frames and in some of the, the the things that they were doing. They they really demonstrated a very intimate knowledge of the trial or whatever story they were writing about. And, and, and it was just kind of blew me away. There's no way I could have given a test that would have pushed them to go into any more kind of knowledge of the story than this creative assignment. And, and, and your presentation really spoke to me, um, both as a teacher and as someone who's interested in the world politically. And, and I, I think that, um, God bless you. That, that was just a great thing that you're doing. Um, and Angelo, um, can people follow you anywhere? Do you have a, 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 a Twitter handle or anything? I, I don't know. Yeah. I actually I post some of my art and some sayings about comics. I'm not as good as I should be at it, um, but it's it's um, academic comics a, at a Joseph Letizia, um, and so uh, you know on Twitter I'm on there, and then I am in the process of of making uh, working with my librarians with the media specials and putting together a WordPress site and my students' projects. I'm going to be putting them on the WordPress site and they'll be in, I have their permission obviously, uh, and they're going to be available publicly. And I want to keep a repository of all my students comics over the coming years. So people can get an idea of some of the things that we're doing. Oh man. What a great resource. That when it, yeah. When it, when it comes up. Yeah. And then, so the Twitter handle is at AJ Letizia. Is that, yeah. Um, it's AJ L E T I Z I A for those yeah. of you. Let me just, let me just get it. Let me just make sure I have it here. <laughs> I always have to rethink I know, my Twitter. I know you. Bit. I mean, I'm on it. I, I go in spurts on it, <laughs> and I know that's part of the. Uh, I'm pulling it up. So I, I know it. You know that's part of the thing. You got to tweet. It's academic comics at a Joseph Letizia. Yeah, and I just post some of my own artwork, um, and I post some things about comics. Some just just some some things like some nuggets for thought about comics and how we can use them and different ways we can use them and whatnot. So, okay. That sounds great. Um, and yeah, I'll put a link up uh, on the show notes. If anybody wants to go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, that you links to all of our show notes and whatnot there. And I would definitely put um, copious links. You've mentioned a lot of works along the way. I've tried to jot them down and I'll put links up to those for those of you who are interested not only in education, but in comics, in political engagement. There's a lot for everybody from this episode. Um, Angelo, this was so great. Uh, anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm looking forward to it. I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah. Um, just shoot me an idea anytime you have one. Um, and likewise, anybody who's listening, uh, thank you for uh, putting up with us for an hour. This has been a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you do have any responses, you can find me at uh, Danny P at Danny P Anderson uh, on Twitter. And I have a email account you can contact me at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Um, I already mentioned the website. If you can go to iTunes or wherever you get your 
podcasts and give us a nice review. I think more people help uh, will find us. And uh, as always, I really thank you for listening and please be in touch. Um, for a- Angelo uh, Letizia, my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Dana!